So today we're going to be in Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4. We're continuing our series in the book of Genesis. <clears throat> yes, we're in Genesis, but we're in Galatians today. As we continue the series, The Difficult Journey of Faith, looking at the life of Abraham and what it looks like and a lot of the time doesn't look like to live by faith, to put your trust uh, in God. Um, now, we're going to be in Galatians 4 because Paul is going to use an allegory out of Sarah and Hagar, which we've been talking about, and I'll explain again here in a little bit. As I open up this message, there's a question I want to ask, because we're all Americans, so we all know how to rack up debt. Have you ever been in debt, and then you got out of some debt? Some of you are like, no, I'm still in it. Is it not one of the best feelings in the world when you pay off debt? When you put in that last bill, and you're like, freedom. It was, I remember Maria and I, you know, because I was smart, I married a nurse, you know, and so when we were able to pay off some debt, when she was working a lot more before we had kids, and one night we paid off like a final bill, and, and she's like, man, she was so excited, because she's from the South, so she's dirt cheap, right? She's frugal as they come, and, and I was like, we got to celebrate, and she's like, yeah, I was like, I don't remember what I said, like, either let's go out to an expensive dinner or go buy something we've been wanting, and she just looked at me like I was the biggest knucklehead, because we just got out of debt, and now you want to go spend money. I was like, okay, point taken, point taken, dear. Now on the flip side, one of the worst feelings, I haven't had this happen once, is where you think you paid off all your debt, and then you find out you had more debt. Anybody ever experienced that? <laughs> Sorry, somebody over here remained nameless, had the greatest look of hopelessness I've ever seen in response to that question. Uh, Tim, I'll point them out to you afterwards so you can go help them. Right? It's like the worst feeling. You're like, oh. This is kind of like what the problem was that they were facing around Galatia, the churches in that area, the Galatian church. They were people who became Christians under Paul's ministry. And after he left, a set of false teachers had came into church and they started teaching something that was opposite of what Paul was teaching. Right? And to boil it all down, it went like this. The false teachers came into everybody and they said, hey, if you believe in Jesus Christ and you obey the laws of God, you will be saved from your sins. The problem with that is when Paul came, he said, look, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And as a result of your salvation, you will obey God's laws. This was a major false teaching that Paul battled in the early church. We studied this years ago when we went through the book of Colossians. Now, some of you might be new to this idea of the law. So what am I talking about? Basically, these guys were called the Judaizers. And they were trying to say Christians, like I just said, had to follow Old Testament laws and customs to truly be saved from their sins. Uh, things like circumcision, which was a bit of a commitment, uh, food laws, calendar observances, uh, ceremonies, religious rules. And it can also mean from time to time the Mosaic law, the laws that were handed down by the Moses in the first five books of the Bible. So Paul gets wind of this and he's infuriated. I mean, he, he compares these guys to, to, to demons. He's so angry about this. And he, and he spends the first four and a half chapters in this letter to the Galatians just railing against this false teaching that believers need to fulfill additional requirements to be saved other than placing their faith in Christ and his work on the cross. Then in verse 22 of chapter four, he uses the story of Sarah and Hagar to bring home his point. I'm gonna read the passage to you and then we'll take a little bit of time to explain it. 
Verse 22, Galatians 4. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These two women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery, and she is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written in Isaiah that rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who, him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall now inherit the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is the word of the Lord. Now, some of you are probably wondering what I just read and trying to figure out what I just said. This would have made total sense to the Christians in that time because they would have understood the history. So to help it make sense, I'm going to explain a bit of the comparison that he's making. Like he said, Hagar, Hagar and Sarah represented two covenants, two agreements. And first he focuses on Hagar and he says this, I'm gonna read it again, 24 and 25. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. So he says, look, Hagar the slave and her birth to her son Ishmael was according to the flesh. In other words, Abraham tried to get his promised blessing by his own strength without relying on God. If you remember, God came to Abraham and he said, you're gonna have a son, which was news to Abraham because his wife, Sarah, was barren. He said, not only are you gonna have a son, you're gonna have so many offspring, they will be like the sand of the shore or the stars of the sky. Well, years went by, no son. So Sarah in her impatience one day says, hey, I want you to sleep with my maidservant, Hagar. And as weird as this sounds to us, this was not uncommon in that day to use a maidservant to produce an heir when you couldn't have kids. Now we've talked about all the problems that it cost. So he said, you do this. So they, so they slept together with Hagar, had Ishmael. All the problems we've talked about week after week. They were doing it in their own flesh. They said, oh, we're not gonna wait for God. He's not producing. Let's try to make it happen ourselves. And this is what happened to the Israelites in the Old Testament. When the law was given in Mount Sinai, the 10 commandments and the other laws, instead of humbling themselves and trusting God to help them obey, they were pretty confident. Deuteronomy and Exodus, they said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do confidently. Problem is they weren't able to fulfill all of God's laws. There's no way that they could do it. They didn't have the ability. They didn't have the hearts inclined to trust him. And that was part of the point of the law at the countless times was to show people their need for God. So he goes on to say, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children in verse 25. And what he's doing is he's making a, a direct attack. 
He said, just like the Israelites of the Old Testament, these Judaizers are coming to Jerusalem and they're teaching you that you gotta obey the law. That is where you find salvation, obeying all of God's laws. Even though all the laws weren't God's laws, they were man exploiting his laws and adding extra laws as we've talked about. Now then in verse 26, he turns his attention to the other half of the allegory, Sarah and her child, Isaac. Verse 26, he says, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is her mother, right? You remember what happened there? Sarah, after 25 years of receiving that first promise to Abraham, she had Isaac by the work of the Lord. And so he's contrasting the present Jerusalem with these Judaizers that are coming teaching, man, you gotta work to get on God's good side to be saved and the Jerusalem above, which can be seen in Colossians chapter three, verses one through three, which I already read. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You see, Jerusalem above, he represents the dwelling place of God. This is what Paul's saying. And our life and our freedom as Christians flow down from that. Okay? Sarah represents the city from above because she gave birth not through her own will or skill or ability, but God's supernatural work. So like he's saying, spiritually speaking, she's the mother of all Christians, even though we saw how horribly she acted time and time again. And he says this because Christians' lives are not the product of our human ability to serve God well but it's the product of God's supernatural work in our hearts. And that is the heart of the gospel. So he goes on to say, as he's furious about this in verse 30, what does scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman should not inherit with the son of the free woman. In other words, he's saying, look, Christians in Galatia, it is impossible for the law and the grace to be together. It's impossible for the works of the flesh and the work of the spirit to be together. It's contrary to the word of God. It's impossible to mix God's gift of righteousness and our attempts to earn righteousness, which means to our attempts to please God and get in a right place with God. He said, they do not go together. You got to kick them out. Do not let them into your church. It is a poison. That's the problem they were facing. And it's a drastic misunderstanding of the gospel. Now, you take us, we're a couple thousand years out from that, right? And, and so it can seem a little bit distant, but this is an important message because not only for Christians, but even for those of you that are like, I ain't a Christian, for you to understand the gospel because we have these same kind of problems in Christianity today. Now, the term we often use for it is legalism. And it's still prevalent, just looks different. There's a few kinds. The first time you see that came to my mind is the, uh, the kind of legalism you would see taught in the sacraments of the Catholic Church. Baptism, the Eucharist, which we would call communion, confirmation, or reconciliation, which we would call confession. Uh, confession. Not, not all Catholics understand this, but the church affirms that for you to have salvation in the Catholic Church, these things are necessary. Either you do them on a regular basis or your salvation is at stake. In other words, do these works of the law. 
However, I'm an equal opportunity employer when it comes to uh, blasting bad teaching because you have seen legalism in the Protestant church as well. More in the forms of correlating your behavior with your spiritual standing. Uh, Strict adherences to dress codes in worship services, uh, ostracizing members or condemning members for having different theological perspectives on on non-foundational issues insisting on particular uh, dietary restrictions or fasting practices. Uh, You see dictating specific translations of the Bible as the only translation. You'll see this in the Midwest and some South where it's like, if you don't read the King James Version, you know, turn or burn, feel the flames. You'll see this even in your activities. I remember I was at a, a particularly an older congregation uh, back in uh, Oregon at Valley Life Center. And one day we were having a class and a couple of them were telling me that when they were growing up, uh, roller skating was seen as sinful. Like it was seen like gambling or dancing, you know? And I was like, man, are you kidding me? And they were dead serious. I'm like, if those people were still alive to see what goes on today, their heads would explode, Right? <laughs> Or you see it, uh, another one is shaming individuals for just ongoing struggles that they have or mental health challenges that they're working through. And then there's another type of legalism I wanted to bring to our attention. And it doesn't have to do with being legalistic about other people. It has to do with being legalistic about ourselves. That when we look in the mirror as Christians, and we can do this as non-Christians in different ways because we don't have the same righteous moral boxes checked than other people around us. We think that God looks at us differently. We're not as special or close to God as the pastor. I, I know this because I have people come to me and say, pastor, pray for me. I said, I'd love to, but you know that you can pray for me. And they're like, yeah, but I know God will hear you. Right, that they're not as loved or blessed or, or watched upon uh, or, or cherished by God. But even us, we can do it. Us worship leaders and pastors, we can see other, you know, like I look at Billy Graham and, or you know, other great teachers of the Bible and I'm like, man, God's really blessing them. And I can be tempted. We all can be tempted to think that we're, we're just not that close or loved or cherished by God. In the end, when you allow those feelings to capture and take hold of your heart, What you're doing is you're looking to your own merits to make you feel right with God. You're looking at your own achievements and your own failures. You're being legalistic with yourself. And this is what the enemy wants. The enemy wants you to look at your relationship with God this way because he knows you are gonna get lost in one of the most powerful destructive forces in your life and that is shame. Shame is a huge deal. Anybody uh, remember the, the movie, The Lion King, right? Akuna Matata. I should have had Tom play this, but I didn't think about this ahead of time. Remember when it was Scar, the uncle Scar, and he wanted, he wanted um, Mufasa's throne, so he started that stampede at the end, uh, at the beginning of the movie, and then Simba, Mufasa's son, he got trapped, and, and so Mufasa ran to help Simba, and then he fell down and he died in what was one of the most heartbreaking scenes of our childhood, right? You remember that? I still feel a little traumatized talking about it now. What does Scar do? 
What does he do to drive Simba away? He goes up to Simba and he says, what have you done? And Simba goes, well, I, I just, I, I, I. And Scar says, if it hadn't been for you, your father would still be alive. And you watch that movie and, 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 he, and Simba's crushed by shame for years, right? Until he meets the warthog and the whatever else that thing was. The Bible teaches, and listen, whether you're Christian or non-Christian, this is true of you. The Bible teaches that deep, deep down in every man, woman, and child, we all know that there's something wrong with us. We all do it. Like I said, it doesn't matter what we believe. We know that there is a lack in us that we are trying to make up for. Some of us will talk about it out loud. Some of us, we keep it deep down in quiet places. This is the reason that we, we're driven to be sexually attractive or we're driven to be successful. We're driven uh, to, to make money or to be in powerful positions or we're driven to social media to get uh, many, many likes and hearts and all of that stuff. We do everything that we can to cover up this, this shame and this lack that we have inside of us. This, this self-loathing and, and criticism that's deep, 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 down that we do our best to ignore most all of the time. Paul says that when you use your own ability to try to cover your shame, if you say, man, I'm gonna work hard to overcome. I'm gonna get a PhD. I'm gonna build my own family. I'm gonna become a sexually attractive, beautiful person. I'm gonna become rich, powerful. I'm gonna get in sports and I'm gonna excel. I'm gonna be perfect at whatever I do. What you will end up as, as a slave. You'll end up a slave to it because you're always going to need it. You're always gonna need that success, that feeling of fulfillment. Whatever it is, you are going to need it to cover that shame. You become a slave to it. You'll be driven and driven by it. And it starts, and parents, this is why it's so important to pour your kids in middle school and high school. That's where it starts and it continues to carry on. In a similar way, Paul says, it's great that you're Christians, but if you go to moral standards, like these laws and these ceremonies, and this is what you're driven to, to cover your shame, you are going to be nothing but a slave. On the other hand, he says, if you understand that what Christ has done, it's all sufficient, and there's nothing to add to it, you become free you live a free life. You, you still strive for things, but you do not have to strive for things. You still work hard, but you don't have to work hard to, to cover that shame. You may still go for a PhD, but you don't have to have a PhD. You still may want to build a family, but you don't have to have a family. You may strive to succeed in things, but you don't have to succeed. Because you're free from those things because your worth and your salvation, your ability to matter and to be loved has nothing to do with you and everything to do with Christ. 
That's why this message is so important because I know every single one of you in here, without even meeting every single one of you, I know that you have shame that you deal with. You have worth that you deal with. I do too. And the only way that you find freedom from that is in Christ. That is why you see that, have you ever noticed culture in our world? It's always changing on what's important. Every generation is something new. Right now, the big thing is the, the self, the person. Used to be a hard worker. Now it's being man, be you, true to you. And it's gonna change every generation. Why? Because there is no answer outside of Christ. And, I'm, and my prayer is, is that whatever shame you have that you're trying to cover up, whatever lack you have, that you'll be able to see it. Some of you, it's hard to see because we'll cover it down, we'll stuff it down for so long, it's like a junk drawer and we don't even know what's in there anymore. That God will bring it to your mind. To pray, bring it to my mind. That means we may give it to Christ, amen? Now the allegory of Hagar and Sarah, it's written to persuade us. It's written to Christians, okay? It's written to Christians, do not follow the Judaizers into slavery, Right? He says this in verse 29. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, talking about Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, talking about Isaac, also it is now. Notice the contrast he's making here. This is how God does it. This is how we, we rely on God and not ourselves. He makes... He says, there's one son that's born according to the flesh. He says, there's another that's born according to the spirit. The point being that when you put your faith in Christ, when you repent and believe, which is the requirement of salvation, it is the work of the Holy Spirit that does it. John 3, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. And then he goes on in the next verses to explain how it is the Holy Spirit who brings this new life. It's the Holy Spirit that comes knocking on your door and says, hey, you are in sin, you're separated from God and you need to know him again. This is the essence of Christianity. It's the miracle of new birth through the Holy Spirit because of the work once again, not that we do, but that Christ did. Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me through the Holy Spirit. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice this. It's all about what Christ did. Nothing about what he did. And when you get this in your mind, when this truth about Christ sinks in your heart, your life stops becoming a roller coaster of when I do good, I am in God's presence, I feel him close to me. And then when you do bad or you fail, God doesn't want me around, he is done with me, he quits. Because you realize it was and it is and it will be the work of Jesus on the cross and his power of his Holy Spirit that is your salvation. You are not a part of the equation other than recognizing where salvation is from. This is what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, where he says, come to me, 
all who were labor and heavy laden, and I will give you what, church? I'll give you rest. He wasn't saying, I'm going to give you a three-day weekend. He was saying all the requirements the Pharisees are putting on you that you think you got to do to be accepted by God, nonsense. Now, the great thing is, and man, when you get this, you understand this, there is such joy in your life. Not only does he bring us rest and salvation, he changes your status. Galatians 4 verse 6 says, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And then he says the same thing in Romans 8, adds a little something extra. Romans 8, verse 15, he says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And you see the parallels that he's making with Galatians 4 and this allegory. He says, you're not born of a slave. You're not spirit. You're not given a spirit of slavery. He said, you've been given a spirit of freedom. You are free in Christ. There's no fear. Perfect love casts out fear as we read. But he says, if you go back to following all these laws and these ceremonies and all of these things, you're going to fall back into that slavery. You're going to fall back into what? You're going to fall back into fear. Fear of what? Fear of God's approval. Fear of, of God's presence. Fear of God reading you and knowing you. And so what do you end up doing? You end up avoiding him because God knows what's in here. Or you end up walking with him and then you fail and then you fail again. And then eventually you're like, I just can't do this. I know God's done with me. I've had people say this to me. I've tried the God thing and I don't get it right. And so God and I, we just come to agreement, went our separate ways. I'm like, you're not gonna like how this agreement's gonna come out. And see what he says here, the other part of 15. He says, but you've received a spirit of adoption as by sons whom we cry, Abba, Father. Which literally a translation for us is the word daddy. Now I hate using the word daddy because I'm picturing these super hip hop pastors with their skinny jeans who like to refer to God as daddy God. And I hate, can't stand that. Drives me nuts, right? Okay, because daddy's not really a reverent term in our, in our uh, culture. And God is still the creator of the heavens and the earth, the Alpha Omega, and the first, the last, right? But what he is displaying is the intimate relationship that God wants to have of you as father, as a son, father to son or father to daughter. And this is why it's important. Far too many of us, especially if you grew up churches that were teaching you so much about the law to earn salvation, you see God as judge. That's how you see him, judge God. Right, And you might see him as the good and right judge, but he, at the end of the day, he's still judge on the nameplate. And it impacts your relationship with God based on how you view him. For example, and forgive me if anybody's in this profession and I don't know it, I have never said to myself, man, I wanna go hang out with a judge. Right? I've never called up, Jay, do you know any judges? Let's go hang out with them Friday night. Never, has anybody said, I don't know if anybody's ever said that. I don't wanna spend time with a judge. I don't want to open up and share my feelings with a judge. I've never had that urge. I don't want to admit my failures to a judge, right? Now, and I may, maybe I appreciate that he banged the gavel and said, because of Christ's blood, you're not, you're free. 
but I, I'm still not gonna wanna be around a judge examining my attitude and actions, you know, driving down the road. Jeff, you know the speed limit's 60, not 63. For some of you, it would be 73, wouldn't it? Some of you, 83. Some of you, 93. Just seeing how sinful you all are, right? If we see God as judge, that's the relationship that we have. But how would our lives change if we saw, once we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we saw him as a loving father? We saw him as our dad. I want to hang out with dad. I want to go camping with dad. I want to play video games with dad. I want to share uh, my fears with dad. If, if I'm going to go get help, it's from dad. If I'm not strong enough, I'm, a, I'm a dad. Can you help me? If I don't know something, dad, do you know about this? When I want to feel safe, I'm going to go to my dad. When I want to hear, I want to hear what my dad thinks of me. I want my dad to be proud of me. I don't want a judge to be proud of me. I just want a judge not to punish me. But a father, I long, a child longs to feel the love and approval of their father. And listen, I know probably a majority of you never had this kind of loving father. Let me correct that. You never had this kind of earthly loving father but I am here to tell you today that you have a heavenly father that loves you this way. And when you see him as that, it changes everything. It changes everything. Do you see him as a judge or as a father? Now, I want to make sure to be clear and not miss the point that the law or what we see scripture teach us, the teachings of the Bible, and really if you go into the Hebrew, that's kind of what the law was. If you go to the, the, the root words, it's the teachings. I don't, I don't want to take, pretend like they're not important. There's a reason that God takes the time to use men in the Bible to tell us so many things, men and women to tell us so many things about what we should do and not do. There's a life for us to live. So we wanna be obedient to God, but it's not because we wanna get our salvation. We wanna be obedient because we have salvation, right? Like, let me switch from father, son to, uh, to marriage. Maria and I, just, we just celebrated 20 years 20 years of, yes, 20 years of marriage and uh, all blissful, peaceful, all 20 years, uh, free from trouble and strife. Um, our, the success of our marriage and our, the intimacy of our relationship, and, and we're like not perfect at all by any way. She's a very patient woman, that's all I'll say. But the success of our marriage is not based on us checking off boxes, Right? When I come home, I don't think, okay, I need to kiss her. I need to give her a kiss, check. I need to offer to help with, our, uh, with Ella, check. Or with the rest of the kids, check. I need to clean this, check. Have I done everything that I need to do to be considered her husband? No, I don't do that. But similarly, I also don't come home and be like, 
you know, throw my bag on the ground, take off my feet and start playing Xbox, right? And say, look, we've been married 20 years. She's kind of in for the long haul now, you know? Kind of trapped, so what's the point? Absolutely not, though I am tempted. When I come home, my heart's desire, and I'm not perfect at it, but it should be just come home, give her a kiss, say, what do you need? Go push Ella on the swing a hundred times or help out with the kids, clean out. Why? Because I love her and she's given her life to me and I wanna bless her and I wanna serve her. And, and, and in the same vein, you know, I don't tell her, uh, I don't think to myself, well, you know what? When we got married 20 years ago, I told her I loved her then and I don't have to do anything now, right? I still go on to tell her I love her and talk to her and we share with each other. And, in a, and it's not a perfect picture, but in a much, 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 much greater way, it's an example or an illustration of what our relationship with God should be. The last thing you should ever do if you're saved is say, well, I prayed a prayer 10, 15 years ago. I got baptized 10 years ago. I'm good. And I don't need to talk to God anymore. Absolutely not. That's blasphemy. Similarly, I should not have to go and say, I need to check off from this today. If I did not read my Bible this morning, if I did not pray for 10 minutes and check, 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 then I am not in good standing with God. He is forsaken with me. No, that's blasphemy as well. The gospel is, I have been saved by my Father in heaven through the death and resurrection of his Son by the power of this Holy Spirit. He's given me everything. I love him and I want to walk with him. I want to know him. I want to serve him. I want to do what he asked me to do because he knows what's best. The Bible's not there to keep me from having fun. It's to show me how to live the most fruitful and beneficial life for me and those around me. So I want to do these things. That is Christianity. Freedom in Christ does not give us the freedom from not obeying God, but it gives us the power to live the lives he calls us to live. And also, and I'll tell you how, because you probably noticed if you've been a Christian more than five minutes, I've said this many times, when you become a Christian and you say, I'm gonna follow God, you pretty much stink at it, right? Some of you have been a Christian 20 years and you stink at it. I've been a Christian 20 some years, I stink at it. You will fail over and over and over and over and over again. It's going to happen. But in those moments, because I know that the Father loves me and he's working on me, he's perfecting me, he may not save me from my sin, he may discipline me, but he will not let me go. And so I don't have to get up and run from God. I don't have to say, okay, I quit. I'm done. I can sub repent of my sins. And I can say, all right, let's try this again. Knowing that God is with me. And, and, and we have to, because the, once again, the enemy, he's gonna jump on us. Every time we fail, he's gonna come knocking out the door to remind us. And it's in those moments, we must just bathe ourselves in God's grace, in his word. That's why the Bible, that's why prayer, that's why coming to church, that's why music is so important, because it reminds us of who he is, because the devil loves us to remind us of who we are. And so when you remember Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, all you heavy laden with burdens, I will give you rest. And you remember verses like that. And that old debt collector, Satan comes a knock and you open the door, you see him, you just slam it right back in his face. Get out of here. Resist the devil and he will flee. 
And that's why it's important to bathe ourselves in his grace even before we sin and fail. So that we are prepared for when we do, because you will. Some of you will take you about 30 seconds after church ends before you mess up, right? And that's why now it's preparing you for those moments. Listen, and I would love to say, two final thoughts on this. I would love to say that when you fail as a Christian, that other Christians are gonna show you the same grace that you, they received. But we know that's not the case, right? And you can allow that to just set in your heart. You can feel unwanted, you can feel rejected, you can feel less than, you can feel torn down. Sometimes that's because they were not gracious and sometimes they were gracious, but just because of the own battles that you're facing. I want you to understand something here. Anytime someone judges you, anytime someone, anytime you judge yourself and you condemn yourself, hear this clearly, you're not condemning you. You're not judging yourself. You are judging Christ. You are saying Christ was not enough. I cannot hit this home enough because we as Christians should never be living in self-pity. You will mess up. You will screw. I do it all the time. But you cannot stay there. You repent. You do your past to make peace, make amends with the situation, and you claim the blood of Christ, and you move on in his glory. Because if you can't, what you are essentially saying is Christ was not enough. When, when we do not show grace to other people and we condemn them and we ostracize them, we are basically judging Christ saying his grace and his death and resurrection were not enough. Do you hear me, church? This is the foundation of how we view ourselves in Christ, how we view others in Christ, not based on who they are, but based on who Christ is, not based on what they've done, but what Christ has done, not based on uh, who we think they will or will not be, but who Christ is working in them to be. And I was reminded of this with my, my youngest daughter last night. All of these deep theological things, the philosophy and the sociology and everything I kicked out, the Bible verses, the allegories, all of this, it can be complex, a lot to think about, which is great and we should. But really in the end, our foundation, our joy, <laughs> our love, our hope, our grace, our self-forgiveness, our forgiveness, it all boils down to some special words. And I don't care how long you serve the Lord, how much theology you learn, how much you give, you serve. I pray that you never grow out of these words. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, when we are weak, he is, yes, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me, he who died. Heaven's gates open wide. He will wash away my sin and let his little child come in. Yes, Jesus loves me.